Yeah. 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 Okay. I'd like to call to order the October 3rd, 2019 meeting of the Route County Planning Commission. Sarah, if you would be so kind as to call the roll. Steve Warren. Yes. Brian Kelly. Andrew Benjamin. Herbert Shire. Here. John Merrill. Here. Here. Greg Yeager. Here. Peter Flint. Here. Here. Present. Let the record reflect we definitely have a quorum. Uh, public comment at this point in the evening. Oh, a bit of housekeeping, but this is pretty perfunctory, I guess. Um, we'd appreciate if cell phones are turned off. I think you gentlemen have already signed in, but if you haven't, I think we know who you are. <laughs> okay, thank you. Um, and in the event that you're going to address the commissioners, we'd appreciate it if you used the microphones, simply because <coughs> these proceedings are available to the public to call in by phone, and the only way that works is if the microphones are used. Thank you. Public comment at this point in the evening, anyone who wishes to address the planning commissioners <coughs> on any issue that is not on the agenda tonight, now would be the time to do so. Seeing none, we're going to close that portion of it. Items for consideration, Alpine Mountain Ranch. Um, under the circumstances, Alan, you want to start? Sure. Because I think the way this is set up probably makes more sense. Okay. Thank you. Uh, so for you, you members that were here at the June 20th hearing, the Alpine Mountain Ranch requested the moving the lots in green that were lot 62, 63 to these ones identified one through four. Uh, Planning Commission approved it on consent agenda and the Board of County Commissioners approved that application. And now they are here to request vacation of the utility easements that were associated with those lots. And this is a, a zoom in of that. Really can't tell what's going up on going on on the screen, but it is for utility easements that affect blocks 12, 13, 19, and the previous lots 60 through 63. And those are identified in the, the gray area right there. Can you? Is there a 19 on this drawing that we're looking at and you just can't see it? That me? Yeah, you just can't see it. Oh, well, there you go. I feel better. Lot <laughs> nine? Oh, lot nine. Sorry about that. And I don't feel and I feel really better now. And it's, oh. it's this lot right here. Yeah, that's nine. Typo. So, yeah, we're going to call that a typo, right? Yeah. Perfect. Uh, are there any comments from the petitioner? 
minutes. Um, just as Alan said, we were before you back in May, I think, in June with the county commissioner or something like that. June, June, planning commission, July 4th. It was frankly an oversight to not be asking for this at the same time that the plan came through when we started working on the plan. Uh, Alan pointed out that we had not requested it, and so here we are to clean that up. Um, the, uh, what's shaded there in the Hoover Dam Road is what I've all referred to it as. It, it goes up in dead ends, as you see. Uh, utility corridor, the, the, uh, the road and the utilities really don't serve any purpose. Uh, with the relocation of those four lots, 60 through 63, down into the body of the subdivision. So we had always intended and even talked about that we were going to be eliminating that construction, that infrastructure, but we didn't formally ask for the vacation. So here we are to get that cleaned up tonight. Um, it is, as, as we said, lot nine. Lot 9 doesn't access off there, but this is the northwest boundary, I guess, if you will, of Lot 9, which accesses down below here off of Meadow Creek Drive. So that's pretty much it. I'm going to answer any questions. Jamie Curcio from Outline Mountain Ranch is with me. Um, answer the structure technical, but uh, uh, I think this is set up pretty well by Alan and his uh, materials. But again, any questions, I'm going to try to answer um, commissioners, any questions for the petitioner <clears throat> or staff? I'm going to open up for public comment. I'm going to close it right away because there's no one here from the public. Uh -huh. One more time. Any questions for the petitioner or staff? Moving this right along, Chair, I'll entertain a motion. I'll make a motion. <clears throat> Thank you. To approve PL 19165 with findings of fact one and conditions one. Second. We have a motion and a second. Any discussion on the motion? Did you cite the findings of fact? Yes. Okay. I, maybe I didn't say it loud enough. Sorry. Okay. She did. I, I can testify. All those in favor of the motion, please signify by saying yes. 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 Opposed, say no. Chair votes yes. Motion is approved. Petition is approved. Thank you. Thank you. Mr. Phillips, debrief. Of course. All right. Um, looking at the coming upcoming schedule. Um, on the excuse me, 17th of this month, uh, there is a meeting, basically, um, the permit review for the Carpenter Ranch Nature Conservancy. And that is the only thing on it. Uh, should be, I would anticipate, a lengthy meeting. Uh, on the Relatively straightforward, I think, is the term you were looking for. I don't think he knows, Mr. <coughs> it's, uh, it'll, it'll be... Um, on the 7th, there is the discussion or possible adoption of the to our recreational facility standards and also uh, the discussion of the possible adoption of our residential treatment facility standards that you guys had all seen a few weeks ago. 
Um, after that, we have nothing scheduled. Um, I'd like to take a uh, little bit of my administrator's review time uh, to discuss the American Planning Association Conference. Uh, from staff, Tegan and I went from Planning Commission, Andy and Roberta were in attendance, and uh, that was actually a pretty good conference. Um, I, you know, generally was pretty impressed by the sessions. You know, there are times when sometimes just roll the dice, but you'll hit one. You know that 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 you'll learn something from. You know, or maybe it's basic, or sometimes they're just kind of ninety-minute infomercials for the consultants that were involved in certain projects. <laughs> and I really didn't see a whole lot. And um, the you know the practice for the last couple of years is to have a little bit of discussion during roundtable. Andy couldn't make it, so he actually forwarded some comments to Tegan, which he emailed to you guys. And so you know, you guys want to maybe take a look through those. You know, and I'll go over some of the some of Tegan's comments, my comments, and, and Roberta will give you some too. And this isn't necessarily the intent to have a discussion regarding some of those topics now, but I would say if you're interested in some some session that one of us attended, you know, just give us a call or. Buy some beer. Talk about it with him. Um, let's see. Uh, just quickly, the first one I went to actually was pretty timely. Best practices for creating a community engagement framework. And, uh, you know, I would say there was nothing real groundbreaking in there. It was, it was good to hear from some planners, uh, Parker, Longmont, Centennial, and Boulder, uh, and Lakewood. They've actually gone through, you know, a, a plan update where they've done a fair amount of public <coughs> research and engagement. I've um, kind of keep my eye on the city of Lakewood, and I'm glad that they were part of this presentation because Lakewood's probably gone more digital, you know, than anybody else. And I think I reported to you after a year, year before last, when I heard year before last of Lakewood, that you know the public comment can be made online. And as planning commission members or, or as city council members even, that it's part of your staff packet basically to get online and to read the online comments. You know, and one of the, one they, they just started two or three years ago with this session, I guess Stephen and I went to, and I talked to the director afterwards and said, How do you handle the trolls? And he says, We're not quite there yet. We don't know. And so it's too bad he wasn't there because you know, one of these days we'll give him a call and see. See how that's all working out because it could be you know the next the next step in staff reports and in preparation for your meetings. So anyway, that was a good session. Um, the next one, there really wasn't a whole lot that applied to, to rural Colorado, but there was one at the other end of the spectrum that I went to. Um, thinking back to my days when I worked for the city and county of Denver, uh, infill. Inclusivity and innovation, collaborating towards Denver's next downtown neighborhood, and there's a development review uh, in process right now. That's basically from the Riverdale Parkway at the south end, I-25 on the west side, Pepsi Center on the east side, and Elidges on the north side. And the Platte River runs through that, and it's mainly parking now for the Pepsi Center and a couple other buildings that are basically <coughs> raising everything. And doing a, a I, what I thought was a pretty well thought out community, you know, where every structure is multi uh, level. Uh, the parking would be interior. I'm still not sure whether or not it'll increase or decrease the Pepsi Center parking, but it'll all be parking structures, and the parking structures will be wrapped by residential, commercial, and office space. 
<laughs> so most of the buildings are multi-use and you know the, the only thing negative that came out is they said no there's really no opposition because nobody lives there but at the east side of that there are a couple of homes and they're not too happy <laughs> you know which is interesting it'd be interesting to hear their comments because part of this this well the one the sea apartment the funky parking lot but um, along the plat, it's all open space and parks. And they're taking like solar access standards very seriously and you know, adjusting the buildings, you know, the mass and height to you know, allow as much solar to, to penetrate this park. So basically they get a public park out of it along the river and river access. Anyways, uh, something to keep an eye on. It was, uh, uh, really didn't relate too much, but thinking, you know, from what we do out here, you know, that really the key to rural preservation, the way I see it, and a large part of what we do is that, you know, one bookend, and the other one is the big city, dense, intense developments like this one, where the people that are happy to live there. Because you have to have that in order to have what we have. Right. There's just, once we get a handle on population, it's, it's not going to happen. And, you know, even the population were to stabilize on this planet, country, state, we're still a desirable place to live. So I think that we'll see those pressures regardless of what happens to you know, population. Um, that was good. The, um, there was a keynote speaker on Thursday, and hopefully Roberta helps me out with this one. Oh, you didn't, you didn't miss him. You weren't there Thursday? I did, but I went to the sustainability Oh. oh, well, first thing at 9 o'clock, it was just in the, in the big room, so there was just one speaker no, I didn't, that everybody I didn't, listened to. I wasn't there. <clears throat> and it was a really interesting discussion. <clears throat> Joseph Minikazi is his name. He's a principal for a uh, consultant firm called Urban Green. And what he, what he does is he, he's national. You know, he goes around the country consulting for cities and towns, and he does a... Um, kind of an economic model of the city, but what he does is he uses the parcel layer, and it's 3D, and he shows the sales tax revenues, property tax, maybe both, but yeah, property tax, property tax per acre. And it would compare things like um, very low income housing compared to Walmart, or uh, Three-story mixed use on the downtown corridor compared to, you know, a you for every parcel in the town. Yeah, every. It was, it was like first Yeah, and with, with the with the conclusion that he was trying to show, and it's it's everywhere, is that I mean, how many times have you heard city of Steamboat say that the residential doesn't pay for itself, but if it's like a three-story structure that has ground floor retail, it's. I mean, that's one of the best scenarios that, especially a mid or smaller town, can have. You know, and then, you no, know, they might get a decent check from Walmart, but on the per, you know, overall, but on the per acre or square foot or whatever the breakdown was, Walmarts are awful. You know, you can get, you can get much, much more. Yeah, because of all you want to see of parking, and it's, yeah. Did he do this in Colorado? Um, yeah, he did. There was the, the community that he analyzed in, in Colorado <coughs> Pueblo, actually, 
Okay, that's right. That's right. Because he was comparing like the old town of Pueblo to some of the newer developments that have occurred. That's like West Pueblo or North Pueblo or Pueblo North or something. Right. Anyway, which is um, which is really bad. Whereas downtown Pueblo is actually very good. And a lot of what his analysis had to do with was are these types of developments that communities are building actually pay for themselves? And, it, and when I was talking to Alan about this, Alan brought up that it really feeds very well into the impact fee conversation that you guys had last week when right. we were on because a lot of it has to do with, you know, sprawl is, is terrible. I mean, it, it consumes way more resources than it actually puts back into the community. And that concentrated development and rural land is a far better model, both economically as well as, in our case, from preservation of open space. But that <clears throat> in, you know, in, in, in Steamboat, it's a little odd because since it's a sales tax community, if you did that analysis here, it doesn't really quite reflect the same kind of in economic impact that it does in communities that are more property tax-based. Right. Because he was mostly doing property tax analysis. But the only town that he really talked about in Colorado was um, was Pueblo. But he compared a lot of different both small towns throughout the country, as well as not a lot of like large cities, right. but um, certain areas, like certain suburbs of cities, or certain um, places that were undergoing redevelopment and the types of redevelopment that they were doing compared to, for instance, what they've been there before, or compared to some of the more sprawl and sort of large lot residential developments that are disastrous economically to these towns. Did he provide any comments on the Gallagher impacts? Uh, he, he had a few choice words. I bet. But that was about it. Okay. <laughs> you know, in thinking about you at home, I know it's because of the property tax situation that we have around here. Just got to thinking about, you know, Brick Ray and the annexations and how there are special districts on top of municipalities, you know, just to get them to pay for themselves. You yeah, know, yeah. And, sure. and if it were this, you know, more dense situation, multi-story, multi-family, then they would pay for themselves. Yeah. You know, and it was it was fascinating talking. It them. was great. I also went to the follow-up. He did a follow-up um, yeah. session that was after the keynote the next day, or maybe the next afternoon, or something. And I did that as well, and I thought it was fascinating. Hmm. That his whole way of approaching sort of whether these things are paying for themselves and what they're actually producing, you know, um, in exchange for what they're getting. Right. Was 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 really, really interesting. Every development area should have, have him, Yeah, I would love to have him come and actually just say, look you guys are screwing up, this is the other Yeah. Yeah, we had we had lunch with, with Toby Stopper, city planner from Steamboat the next day and we all agreed it would be great to have this guy come here and do that modeling sure. for the city of city of I mean, you could highlight building by building in town. Oh, yeah. Hmm. I mean, just like saying, like, look, which is the, which is the most productive building hmm. in this whole downtown area? Sure. What's the most productive building in this suburb? Who's got the retail on the first floor and who's got the condos on the second floor and, and offices? And, and density. Yeah. Did, did, did he address, though, the CAC? I mean, I'm very familiar with San Francisco where they have a mandate you have to have commercial associated with almost all these new uh, condo buildings in the Mission area or downtown, and they can't fill them. So the retail just stays empty. 
Well, I don't think it was so much that he was concentrating on having retail or commercial space as much as having dense enough development that on a, on a, on a land use basis, yeah. it was paying for itself because the, each one of those, you know, each one of those units stacked on top of each other actually amounts to significant tax. property tax. Yeah. So it wasn't the mixed use. It wasn't component. so much right. the mixed use okay. as it was the overall density. That makes sense. And the thing that kills stuff is stuff like parking because it pays like zero pays in nothing. property taxes. But yet, it you know, it makes all these impervious spaces that require maintenance that have to be plowed and have to be fixed and, and X, Y, and Z. And all the infrastructure it takes to get out to strip mall type development is never going to be paid for by the giant parking lot. Mm -hmm. He would, surrounds this, you know, the on these three models, models, you know, he would focus in on where these spikes are, you know, where the, where the revenue is. Yeah. And it was usually, you know, because he would do like just a Pueblo, Asheville, North Carolina was yeah. another another city that he had done, and it was usually the old town area with three or four story buildings, you know, near the core with ground floor residential and, or excuse me, other way around, residential on top, office commercial on the bottom. But it was a fascinating study. Yeah, it was really it was great listening to this guy. Um, next one uh, was called the Small Lot Limbo. How low can you go? And um, you know, it was mainly examples from the Front Range again. But just thinking about you know, Peaberg and Milner, and you know, in someone's feet, but the the twenty five foot by one hundred and twenty five foot, you know, hundred year old lots that we've got. And you know, you're all familiar with you know the tiny tiny home. But you know that conversation that you know that Alan and I had with the attorneys and came up during that last round is finals, and that was yeah by zoning these you know two lots, but by subdivision, he's got four lots, and you know which kind of begs that question: if somebody were to come in with one lot, which I still haven't seen yet, and they got a got a variance or adjustment, and it would be a good candidate for it, you know, could they build a home? And there were some examples from these speakers that were dealing with the same scenario, and they would give variances to three and a half feet. So it would be maybe fire code and seven foot separation here, we do, we do five feet. But you have these 15 to 18 foot wide homes that are two and three stories tall, and you know decent architecture to them. But there are these communities that are doing detached single family homes on 25 foot wide lots. <coughs> So you know, you know what in Chicago they're getting for those twenty-five foot wide lots in certain neighborhoods? Yeah, half a million. Yeah, I was going to say Chicago and New York—they've been yeah. doing that for hundreds of years. And then wall to wall, the Masons, because they're typically their concrete block and finished brick buildings, and the Masons work on the inside only because they can't work on the outside because there's a lot. There's another house there. Right. It's amazing. And, you know, so we thought, you know, that, that scenario on its own, but what if you had four lots and you wanted to do, like, fourplex in a row house? And, you know, you, you couldn't do it in Milner because in order to do multifamily, you need water and sewer pipes. But in Beaver, they got old. So we could actually have that scenario where we had multifamily units. Those but, well, I'm talking about not the, the building. It is a multi-family building mm -hmm. that has single-family, more airspace and townhomes. The land, uh, the land below, and airspace above. 
Anyways, but it uh, it could happen. But it was it was neat to see some of the creativity that's oh, yeah. gone into some of these. Um, <coughs> ethics. I have to go to an ethics class analog class. Roberto was in that one with me. And that's always interesting. If you fair at an APA conference and you, especially in Colorado, and you're not sure that about no, the other ones sound that exciting, go to one of the ethics classes. I mean, it's this group that's there makes it entertaining. Entertaining for about the last five years, it's been the same three. And they're almost standard comedian quality, but what they do is take a scenario that's come to their attention, modify it, but turn it into a skit, and then stop you at the skit and say, okay, you know, is this a violation of ethics number five? And then have a discussion with the audience about that. You know, so it's, uh, it's, it, that, that 90 minutes actually goes by pretty quick. Maybe that's just me. Um, that was Thursday. And yeah, Friday was just a short day with many mobile tours. And, and uh, the only law that was, law credit that was available had was basically home rule versus statutory. And I won't go into that too much with you guys. Roberta, any, any comments? Um, well, I went to a couple of sustainability things where they talked about climate action plans, which was of interest to me because. Initially, I had thought um, that we, as we're updating the master plan, would incorporate a lot of the sustainability elements directly into the master plan. And um, one of the, this is the PC workshop, actually, where um, the Pitkin County uh, Planning Commissioners advised me not to do that because they said, if you're really going to have a climate action plan, you should keep that as a separate document and just reference it throughout the master plan because you're going to need to update it all the time, you know, to stay on top of what greenhouse gas reductions are actually happening in your community. And if you put it in the master plan, let's face it, everybody knows it takes years sometimes to get a master plan amendment through. So that, was, that I thought was interesting that they had that perspective. Um, they also talked a lot about what goes into a climate action plan and after after this session. Did you get the email that I sent about with all the attachments to it? It doesn't sound like it. The one for me? After the after the I wonder if it didn't go through. No. Okay. Well I did send an email okay. and I copied it. Anyway, um, one of the things they do, and I don't know that this county has done it, but they do an inventory of where the greenhouse gas issues are coming from. So they have a baseline to work from. And then like Fort Collins and Boulder and Aspen, who are all leaders in this in Carbondale, um, they set, you know, they set standards. They say, okay, we're gonna have a 20% reduction by 2020, and we're going to have a 30% reduction by 2050, and we're going to be carbon neutral by, sorry, we're going to be carbon neutral by 2050. Um, so they actually have a metric that they're going against, and then they talk about, these plans talk about where do most of the greenhouse gases come from, and buildings, and all of them, buildings was number one, and they talked about ways that, you know, some of the plans, actually Carbondale, I thought, has a really good climate action plan because it's not all this philosophical stuff. It's actually, this is how we're going to actually do it. So retrofitting existing buildings, getting grants to help people improve their um, heat efficiency in their units, 
and then putting in building codes that um, require, you know, star energy appliances and great insulation. And so buildings was one. Uh, transportation and traffic was another. Um, that's tough for this county because we really don't have a great um, bus system. Uh, you know, there's nothing from South Route, there's nothing from North Route. There's like one bus a day from Craig. But if getting people out of their cars by encouraging bikes, bikes and pedestrian uses and other things are ways that people are addressing that. And then solid waste management is number three on practically everybody's list, trying to um, reduce uh, waste going to landfills. So, and then they, they put budget numbers, the dollars associated with trying to make, to achieve all these greenhouse gas reductions. So, correct me if I'm wrong, but I thought the, the county and the city were in the process of starting to do a climate action plan. Is that not correct? Did I misread that in the paper? It's, it, it, so it's in the early stages. I mean, because I know that we've included as far as our, our bullet list for this master plan update, uh -huh. you know, um, climate change impacts. Um, outside of that, there isn't anything that's been kicked off. Okay. Well, it just struck me that their their advice to keep it as a separate document um, made sense because you have to update it on a regular basis sure. and, as opposed to the master plan. Um, I also went to, we talked about vacation rentals in Durango, mm. and um, Durango passed their first vacation rental ordinance in 2007. They define vacation rentals as rentals shorter than 30 days. Is this in the town of Durango? Yeah, city of Durango. Uh, they have a cap of 100 units, and they're mostly uh, located within the central business district and outside of um, residential areas, which is interesting to me. And it represents 1%, what they allow is 1% of the city's total housing stock. They have a permit fee of $750 per unit per year. They also have to get a business license, a sales tax license, and they pay lodgers tax. And the, the vacation rental permits that are issued are not transferable with the sale of the property. So somebody bought one of those units that have to reapply. They don't grandfather in, or they didn't grandfather in any of the existing uh, vacation rentals that were in the city. Um, and they require that vacation rentals be the primary residence of the owner. So they're, they're trying to discourage um, absentee ownership. Um, they require a local contact, like you know, a maintenance company or something. Something goes wrong. Um, they, I asked the question, and how do you enforce this? Because this is 100 units; it's pretty strict. And they have a company called Post Compliance, that's a third-party vendor that monitors the web, and they pay. They have, they're under contract to the city for fifteen thousand dollars a year. And basically, they, if they see somebody that's got a vacation rental listed on Airbnb or VBRO or something, they let the city know. And then the city is very strict about their enforcement. So they send one letter. And if they don't get compliance, they send a second letter. And if they don't get a, a compliance after the second letter, they, they issue a court summons. And they, they actually said they hadn't had to do that court summons very often, just like one or two times. 
but the maximum penalty in Durango is $1,000 a day for violation once, you, once they send a letter. And in Colorado, it's apparently it's allowed, and I don't know if this is legislation or not, but you just said in Colorado, they could, you can charge up to $2,500 a day, plus one year in jail for vacation rental violations. There you so go. is that $1,000 per day that is advertised? Or if it's, if, I imagine it's for advertising. But they didn't, that's a good question. They didn't specifically say that we could check into that. Um, because that's one of the areas that I'm still, we're still having a hard time getting information on is that, you know, we can take a neighbor's word for it or we're not going to take out a property. But we've got this website that just has all of these. You know, booked days less than 30, you know, less than 30 consecutive. And, you know, it would be good to find a local government that takes the position that you're busted once you advertise. Yeah. You know, well, they may, that may be, and I didn't ask that question, but I thought the fact <laughs> that, that, that they're. They kind of are. If they're, if they're applying somebody's web, I mean, if it's on the web, that's essentially advertising. That's yeah. Essentially <laughs> I mean, that's when they get so your that's, letter. That's, yeah, so that essentially that's exactly what they're doing. Sounds like you can contact Durango and get all the details. Yeah, and then um, they want. Funny because there's a there's a company similar to that. What's it called? <coughs> Post compliance. Post compliance is called Lodging Reps, and I actually think they're out of Durango. And well, he, I, he and did. I, I have talked with them, but you know, asking to put together a proposal for me that you know included that that was based on just the band scenario, which is basically <laughs> you hit a hundred. Right. And uh, it's been like two months. Well, he, he said there were multiple companies I'll, I'll, I'll that, that did this, this but anyway. Um, he also They also went on to say that they, there was a, a study that was done that showed that vacation rentals increased, this is, this is going to be completely intuitive, vacation rentals increased the cost of rental housing and for sale housing, and the vacation rental sector has grown 800% since 2011. So for example, Breckenridge now has 45% of its housing stock in vacation rentals. It's shocking. That's why he said, this guy was saying, you know, you guys need to get a handle on it. Now maybe in Route County it isn't as intense as it is in Steamboat, right. but. Um, and then they talked about vacation rentals are typically assessed at residential tax rates far below the commercial rates that the same number, in which you get the same number of visitors. So, 7.15% um, versus 29%? Correct. I know that. So it's right here. No, I thought you were reading that. my key. No, I can't read it. Now that my glasses are. So anyway, I thought that was really interesting. Andy also, that this is, they had a planning commissioner workshop where they, they had like little breakout sessions, so people rotated between the breakout sessions. So vacation rentals was one of them. Uh, sustainability was another that I went to. They had one on affordable housing that I don't think either Annie or I had time to go to because they cut it off. And then they had one on water that Annie went to. And I don't, I haven't had a chance to read what Annie sent, but um, maybe that's one of the things he would like to talk about is water. Um, so that was it. All right, thanks. And uh, obviously, Tegan's not here, but she went to Cutting Edge Colorado Park Plans, that infill inclusivity and innovation. But I went to housing. What's in it for your health? Oh, that was awful. 
Making tourism and outdoor recreation sustainable. Um, that was a kind of interesting because I went to that okay. one too. Didn't you think that that's where they they had the um, yes. the group? They brought people from that's disparate right. groups around the county together. You know, looking, down in Gunnison. Yeah, in Gunnison, mountain bikers, hikers, you know, tourists. Related industry. I don't know who they all work, but yes. they got consensus as to what parts of the county uh, they were going to basically sort of write off, and other parts of the county where they're going to say, no, we're going to preserve this and we're going to stop allowing, like in the, in the forest, they're actually going to stop allowing camping anywhere. Um, so they were trying to identify, okay, which areas are we going to, and then the third category was which areas are going to improve so we can try and promote tourism in those areas. And I thought that was pretty interesting that they had gone to that extreme. I mean, because that's, right. it, that's our above past problem. Right. And there, there are some comparisons between, between the two. I thought it was interesting that, you know, they had one of the Gunnison County Commissioners speak, and it was, that, you know, other than maybe some of the limits that were placed by the Forest Service, like the camping issue that they brought up, and some of that was just alternative living arrangements, it sounds like. But um, but the county commissioners were more just, you know, what do you say, there's 80% public lands in Gunnison County, and that's, you know, come on in. You know, it, and, and, you know, I even asked them a question about, well, if it impacts some of your, you know, your smaller rural towns and your rural areas, you know, are you getting flack from your community, and how are you going to handle that? And you know, I don't know that there was really that great of an answer. It was just like, like it was almost their obligation to accommodate tourism because they're eighty percent um, public lands. I mean, that's kind of the impression I got. So it was maybe a little different, or maybe they're not quite. You know, they're, they're still. You know, they passed a tax. No, it was a lodging tax for um, money for for. Advertising for tourism, but I don't know if they hit, you know, that point yet in the community where the community started to say, "Hey, no." But they were also talking about collecting money from the from the various outdoor vendors, so the rafting companies on a voluntary basis. They were they were asking people to donate money to help in, for improvements, restrooms, parking lots, that kind of thing. Um, yeah, because that's their bread and butter, and it was, I guess, just pretty disgusting as far as some of the impacts with overcrowded trails that didn't have a restroom at the trailhead, and you know, parking on shoulders that was, you know, causing damage. And yeah, it was uh, some of it we could definitely relate to. Um, uh, she went to an ethics class all the time. So. And one called Small Towns, Big Impacts. I don't know if you... Didn't go to that one. Yeah, I didn't attend that one either. I mean, it was like... You I, did. Like, you I was up. Yeah. I was at that one too. Uh, that was the one where I, I was... Uh, uh, there was a real interesting disconnect because <laughs> one of the guys that was there was the planner for um, Buena Vista. And in Buena Vista... Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> he was I mean, Kind of. He, he was really interesting because he was he was incredibly negative about what I consider having been through, you know, we said back and forth a lot during the course of a lot of changes over the past, say, five to ten years. I mean, 
I think it's all good. And he was very pejorative about it and, um, and, and really had very little good to say about, you know, young people moving in, having babies, having things like wedding venues that's increased their tourism, rafting, all of this stuff. And it kind of made it sound like their planner in their town would much prefer that it was sort of a, you know, the town that it used to be 15 years ago, but it was mostly a prison town. And um, it seemed like a real disconnect that he yeah. had between between the way that he thought things ought to be going and the way that, in fact, what I considered to be a pretty big group. But I would just assume you didn't talk too much about what was in place 15 years ago. But all this stuff was incorporated, so the, the <coughs> town was allowing it all. But yeah, this didn't it's sound very weird. Too, I mean, many, it was, too yeah. many good things to say about it. And a couple of the things that were happening outside of the town. And, and I mean, you did have some gripes about things like vacation rentals and how many there were many more of them, and how that would really reduce the stock of available long-term rentals. And I get that. You know, that that made some sense to me based on the kind of economic shifts that have gone on that t- on that town. I'm sure that that's a positive impact. But um, but God, they've got this fabulous river park, and they've got huge, you know, a tr- terrific trail system, and um, and their economy has diversified, you know, in a bunch of different ways, and they're getting a whole lot of young people moving in. <laughs>
so she can be there first thing Wednesday. Uh, that was the issue in Durango. Wednesday night, Thursday night, because they're starting to wrap up things early. Used to go to five on Friday, but now they're getting out about at noon, and then they had coupons for beer and stuff. So they're trying to get you to hang out a little bit, and then hopefully stay the weekend. So, and what that means for us is, you know, he's got to pay for another hotel, but. As long as it's not the Wildwood and the Stonehouse. <laughs> that was oh, is that where you stayed? Experience. Yeah. You've been there? <laughs> oh, yeah. So, yeah, the last time we were there, we got to stay in the Viceroy, which was pretty sweet. Mm. So, uh, yeah, big, big uh, difference between that and the Wildwood. So, anyway, just be thinking about, about uh, attendance there. You know, there's one thing that I was interested in that. They didn't have a session on, maybe because it's too early, and that was the impacts of Senate Bill 181, the, the changes to oil and gas. Mm -hmm. I know there are a lot of the local communities that were still trying to figure that out, and that's one of the sessions that I would not have missed. But there wasn't anything there. So but I think you yeah. answered your own question. I don't think anybody knows it. Yeah. So they so, did. They so did say in the, one of the, in the planning commission, one of the sustainability things in the workshop, that the Department of Labor has just set up a. Um, a committee or some sort of resource for um, communities that have natural resource extraction to help them trans find transition jobs into other industries, which I thought was interesting. Yeah. Apparently, it's a brand new um, component of the county, of the, excuse me, of the state government and the Department of Labor. Okay. So I don't know if that'll help, you know. In I, well, it's a cool, that's a cool function of the thing, huh? Any sort of natural sure. resource extraction, you know, transitioning because of climate change, you know, transitioning out of oil, gas, and coal. Probably coal right now. But anything that would help right. those communities. Oh, absolutely. Okay, that's it. We're done. All right, thanks, everybody.